What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America Prospects podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, joined by Matt Eddy to discuss the Mets system today. Matt, the Mets have been in the headlines a lot this offseason from their unconventional hiring of Brody Van Wagenen, former agent turned general manager, to the moves Van Wagenen has made. Uh, we saw him go out and make a big splash right away, trading their first rounder, Jared Kelenic, uh, along with a couple of other uh, players of note from the big league roster to the Mariners to go get Edwin Diaz and, and take on Robinson Cano's contract as well. Uh, they've been aggressive on other fronts, definitely going the we're contending route versus the we're selling route. Uh, just overall, what's been your initial impressions of, of the Van Wagenen era and the path he is setting for the Mets? Uh, for me, it's clearly the right strategy with two years of club control for Jacob deGrom, uh, one for Zach Wheeler, and, and three for Noah Syndergaard. It's, um, it's now or never for this, this Mets team. Um, so the question isn't if they should trade, it's, it's which trades they should be making, which assets they should be selling, and what they should be trying to add for, to the Major League roster. Yeah, all the discussions about trading Noah Syndergaard never really made sense to me. Yes, there's some injuries there, but this is still an elite, elite arm. This is the type of guy when you're drafting, developing, or acquiring prospects, you hope the outcome is. When you get a guy like this, you don't trade him when he's 26 years old. And for me, I think that the Mets, while they had a bad season last season, you mentioned that talented rotation. An outfield of Nimmo, Conforto, you know, Cespedes, when and if he comes back healthy, we saw Jeff McNeil come out last year and do some good things. There were pieces to work with there, and I did feel like it was going to be easier to build than it is to tear down. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. they had to trade a, a very prominent prospect, Jared Kelenic. It's always risky. I wrote about this uh, uh, last month. When incoming GMs come in and trade prospects they either haven't seen or they've only seen from an opponent's viewpoint, it doesn't tend to work out well as opposed to you know prospect for veteran trades actually overwhelmingly work out in favor of the veteran. Uh, this one is the rare case it doesn't. Um, what's your overall sense on, on making that decision there to move you know the first round pick, 
undisputed top hitter in the draft right away without ever really getting you know eyes on him? He wasn't going to factor for the team for at least three years. That doesn't philosophically. I don't object to it if you if you add high caliber major league players. Uh, I you know in scouting him, he's pretty well balanced. But I don't know that anyone feels confident there's going to be a lot of 60s ultimately for Kellenic. You know, I think the hit was probably the best, but you can, you can just look back a couple of draft classes and see somebody like Blake Rutherford, who also was old for his high school class. Good hitter, hasn't really materialized into great power production in the minor leagues. You know, he's still a fine prospect, but I don't think you would say, oh, we should, we should never should have traded him. And it, it's interesting, you know, I, I put this out on Twitter that we've seen the first prep outfielder off the board the last couple drafts. While some of them have still maintained themselves as, as fine prospects, they've all, you know, you look at what their quote-unquote trade value was their first year after being drafted to what that trade value was and, and their ultimate big league projection was a year or two down the road, it tends to be lower. I wrote about this a lot that the first high school right-hander taken, I won't even say is rarely the best take of his class. It's pretty much never the best of his <laughs> class. Uh, high school outfielders... It's not quite that extreme, but a lot of times it's the first one taken doesn't end up being the best one. Yeah, well, the rhetorical question being, what's the trade value of Mickey Moniak now? What's the trade value of Austin Beck right now, you know? And, and again, Moniak finished strong last year. Beck has, has done fine. It was Compar not a bad compared year, with Compared with the draft drafted, year, yes. It is lower, objectively. And, and in that sense, you do get a stud in Edwin Diaz, who, you know, we saw the Mets bullpen implode repeatedly last year. Mm -hmm. They also came back and, and re-signed Juris Familia after mm -hmm. trading him. They're building up, and, and I agree with you that I don't think it was the wrong move. Um, that all said, there are still guys in this system who can help them. It's not like they've emptied the system out. Right. This isn't an A.J. Preller 2015 Padre situation. Um, I want to start with Andres Jimenez. He's the number one prospect in the system for the second year in a row. Uh, in the course of your discussions with Mets officials, scouts outside the organization, was it clear cut? Was Peter Alonso in the running? Like, what, what was the gap between Jimenez and everyone else? Jimenez has a lot of avenues to, to being a productive major leaguer, even if he doesn't have the 70 tool that Alonso has with his power. Whereas Alonso has very stark strengths and weaknesses. <laughs> Jimenez is the opposite in that he's pretty much, he's 50 or better across the board and in the, in the evaluations of his defense and speed have only, have only grown more favorable. So I think with physical maturation, he already, he will tap into a little more power and he will be a first division caliber middle infielder, probably at second base. You know, you mentioned his physicality. He's, you kind of look at him, he's 19, he looks 14. Mm -hmm. He's very baby-faced, too. Baby-faced, but when you look at what he's produced, it's not like he's a guy, you know, you look at maybe a guy like Leody Tavares, who you say, oh, he's still young, and, and the body has a lot of maturation, but the production hasn't been there. Jimenez still looks young, has a lot of maturation to come, and he's produced, got to double-A last year, mm -hmm. you know, 280, 29 doubles, some of those will turn to home runs down the road, 38 stolen bases. I went to the Fall League and, and definitely looked a little overmatched there, I, I saw him. But even there, you know, I, I talked with you about this. I'd seen Jimenez at a couple points differently, and each time I saw him, he never looked overmatched, but I never really saw him do anything that made me go, okay, there's something really there. The final day I saw him in the Fall League, I saw it. You see a guy driving balls into both gaps against good velocity. 
uh, clearly, you can't be 19, get up to double A and hold your own without, without skills, and he's, he's shown those. You mentioned there's some confidence he'll be a first division regular. Is there an all-star ceiling there? Is it more of a solid, steady, you know, everyday type? Uh, I wish I could be that clairvoyant. Uh, <laughs> Don't we all? At this stage, I would, I, would, I would wager no, but there's always the opportunity with anybody who's uh, driven and talented as he is. So given that, you know, there's this well-rounded skill set, offense, defense can run, versus you mentioned that the big tool with Peter Alonso, at what point in this process did it become clear to you that, that it was Jimenez number one? Um, having ranked the system for, the, for several years and these two prospects for a few years, you know, there was some inertia working in Jimenez's favor. Like, like I said, I mean, it's <laughs> the weaknesses on Alonso catch scouts' attention. Uh, we, as a publication, as a media company, tend to be biased against Alonso's player type, uh, the right-handed first baseman, where it's all power but not a lot of, of other uh, supporting attributes. So I think that's kind of, it biases me in that favor as well. With Alonzo, uh, this, you mentioned the right-handed hitting first baseman, and there are some very clear hits, Paul Goldschmidt, Reese Hoskins, mm -hmm. um, but there's also a long, long list of failures. Uh, you've worked here since 2002, and you can recite them by name. <laughs> um, you know, Reese Hoskins, when we saw him last year coming up, not only did you see incredible strikes on discipline, you saw top-of-the-line bat speed, posted the highest bat speeds uh, at the Futures game. You saw him, you know, playing first base. He moved all right. You know, it wasn't gold glove-ish, but everything was fine. Made the plays he was supposed to. Um, I know when I saw him for the first time in the Futures game and then a few weeks later at Lehigh Valley, it was very clear this guy is going to rake and rake and rake a lot. Peter Alonzo, in your discussions with scouts, my looks at him, it's not quite as clear. Um, you know, one of the things making calls in, for the PCL Top 20, a lot of guys said they saw him beating up on the mediocre stuff and struggling against the better stuff. I then went out to the Arizona Fall League and saw it for myself. You know, hey, when he got a 94 mile an hour fastball over the plate, he did not miss it. He hit that thing a mile, and he deserves a lot of credit for that. You have to take advantage of mistakes. Mm -hmm. But when I saw him facing guys, you know, John, the John Duplantiers of the world or the Nate Pearsons of the world with big, bigger velo, in Duplantier's case, you know, movement and secondaries, there was a lot of ugly swings, a lot of tie-up swings. Alonzo uh, was right at the top of the leaderboards and strikeouts as well as home runs. I, I do want to talk about his offense first because at the end of the day, that's what's going to carry him. Mm -hmm. How much confidence was there from the scouts you spoke with, both internally and externally, that whole hit enough against the good pitching to really be, you know, that true 30 home run guy in the major leagues? Because he's not going to be facing too many weak arms day in and day out. No, especially with the National League East improving dramatically in the past several years. Um, yeah, I, I would not put him on the same level as a Goldschmidt or a Hoskins just simply because he's not as athletic. Like the comps that have kind of stuck to him since he turned pro are, guy, are more guys like Evan Gaddis and Mike Napoli. Th that's probably where you should set your expectations. Chris Carter was another one. Yeah, statistically, you know, he's a little... Yeah, that, that's a statistical comp that I drew from baseball reference. But 
Gaddis and Napoli are probably more reasonable expectations. Like I would never, you'd probably be, regard those guys as 40 hitters or, or not, or even worse than that. So I think, I think that's the neighborhood you should be thinking. At the same time, both those guys have carved out nice long careers. Napoli for some playoff teams. Gaddis, obviously, a member of the Astros. If that is who he is, do you prefer him or Dom Smith as the Mets' first baseman of the future? Well, I mean, it's the power separates Alonso. Even even with a low average and, and strikeouts, you you have to have 30 home runs from first base to win with the way the game is structured now. All fair points and very very true. So. Say 230, 240 with 30 home runs a year. The defense. Uh, I remember, again, just being in the Fall League, watching Alonzo, you know, picking a ball to the dirt is never easy. It's one of those things that the best make look easy, but it's not. But there's still a certain amount of, you know, there, there, there's balls if you're a first baseman at the major league level, you need to be able to pick out. Saw him miss one that he needs to be able to get if he's going to be a major league first baseman. Then I saw him just whiff on a pickoff throw, which is something I heard about in the PCL, which saying, you know, basic things like pickoff throws, the word used to me by an opposing manager was, quote-unquote, a gamble. If, if a pickoff throw is a gamble, that's a problem. Um, there were other players where he was tripping over his own two feet. And then there were moments where, to his credit, after all those mistakes, he did have a nice pick out of the dirt. You know, ball's thrown out his chest, he'll make it. Uh, if the ball's hit right at him, he'll make the play. Um, we saw the errors come down this year, but you know, I remember talking to one scout and he said, it's not very often you have a guy with a 20 and an 80 on the same scouting card, and that's what I have him. He, they had him as a 20 grade defender, which you know, even for first base, you can't get away with that major league level. And that's why it kind of, a lot of Mets fans were screaming that Peter Alonso not being called up was the same as Eloy and Vlad <laughs> not being called up. And as we tried to say repeatedly, no, it's not because you cannot put him in a major league game right now at first base. Yes, he is better off going to spring training. He is better off going to St. Lucie and trying to hone some things there. Um, it's a very long-winded way of saying that it's, it's not good over there. Um, statistically, it did get better. Where is he now, again, from all your, your, your calls and your discussion points, and, and how playable is he there, presumably, by next year? <laughs> You're hoping he gets to 40. I think that's, that should be the goal for Alonso and the Mets. Um, it is unusual for a prospect to receive so much notice for, for, for below average to poor defense. Especially at first base. Uh, Josh Bell for the Pirates is one guy who comes to mind who also had a terrible reputation in the minor leagues defensively. And his, his um, advanced metrics in the majors are pretty poor with the Pirates. Uh, it does cut into his uh, wins above replacement totals. But he still is out there every day. Right, right. I think that's one place you might look. Uh, from, you know, Alonso is aware of aspects he has to work on, and he does have the work ethic to do everything he possibly can to get to that 40. Now, ultimately, it's, it's really going to be up to him whether he actually does that or not, but he's an unusual prospect. <laughs> you mentioned he's unusual. Um, given what he can do, what he struggles to do, was he the clear number two in this system, or were some of the No. Okay. Uh, initially, I had toyed with the idea of putting Ronnie Mauricio and Jared Kelenic ahead back when Kelenic was in the system. Um, ultimately, it's, the, it's the, the batted ball feats that literally had never been done before that kind of convinced me that, 
there's something here, even though this player has limitations, he also has, you know, his home run at the Futures game had the lowest launch angle of any ball hit that far. His home run off of Nate Pearson was 103 miles per hour. Nobody in the major leagues has hit a home run off a pitch that fast. I think Rafael Devers is the closest at 102 point something or other. Off of Chapman. Off of Chapman. Yeah. So there's two things that literally had never been done before as measured by StatCast. That, that's, that spoke to me. <laughs> Agreed. And, and you mentioned he gets a fastball and he's on time with it. It's going to go a long way. And there's a lot of strength there. And you're right, he, he's a good guy. I got to talk to him a little bit the Futures game. And he's the kind of guy you root for. There's, there's real ability to change a game with his power. He's a good guy. And you mentioned the work ethic is there. Um, but you're right, he's kind of an interesting prospect that I think Mets fans are hoping is their franchise savior. I think in reality, he's more of a, a good player and someone you like to have, but um, if he's the absolute best player on your team, you're probably not a playoff team. Is that a fair assessment? Mm -hmm. Yeah. With that, you mentioned number two, the feats are there, but Ronnie Mauricio was you know, in consideration for that spot. Big international signee, came over this year to the U.S., uh, had a really strong debut. What were the types of things you, you were hearing about Mauricio that, that had you bump him into this upper echelon of prospects? You know, Because Alonzo and Jimenez are both top 100 guys, and Mauricio's in the conversation for that level as well. Yeah, he's probably a couple hot months at, um, at Columbia away from top 100 consideration. Uh, the, the Mets' internal metrics, from what, I, <clears throat> from what I've been told, score very well, like just his hand speed and bat speed, are like, just at the top of the charts for their minor league players. And we saw that through the first couple months of his, of his GCL season. He did tell off in August, but he's you know, 17. <laughs> uh, so there is you know, 60 hitting potential you know, and power potential there from a guy who he doesn't run, but he will stay on the infield probably at third base uh, and, and strong arm. So there's, you know, you're, you're looking at potential 360s or better down the road where it counts. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, not saying it's shortstop. Is it more third base? Is it more second base? What's third the base, I would have to assume, based on his arm strength and physicality. Long way to go. You know, you always want to be cautious about 17-year-olds doing what they're doing at the rookie ball levels. Um, but within that context, it seemed like there was still a, a fair bit of confidence that this guy is going to hit long-term. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's reflected all the way back to, to Ben Badler's reporting. He was the number two international prospect. You know, probably would have had a 60 grade on him, 55 or 60 overall grade coming out of the international class, and that has so far been realized. And just for listeners out there, a 55 overall grades, a first division regular who's, you know, again, the, a starter on a championship contending team, and, and a 60 grade player is a future all star. So obviously a long way to go, but Mauricio mm -hmm. has, has had some promising projections right out the chute, and his first taste, he, he certainly lived up to it. Um, so you have your clear top three. Mm -hmm. Move into Mark Vientos, Anthony Kay, David Peterson. Were they, is that, were they a clear tier below at four, five, six, or were any of them in consideration for the top three? That's the pretty clear tier. You know, um, Vientos does have an interesting combination of power production and you know, plate discipline. He's also the youngest player in his draft class, I believe, 2017 class. I think he was the youngest player in that one. So... You know, it might have seemed like the Appy League was, was too conservative, but given his age, you know, I think he proved that it was the right decision. 
12 doubles and 11 home runs in 60 games. Uh, hit up just around 290, just under 390 on base. Numbers were good all around. Uh, you know, draft is a shortstop. It seems like third mm -hmm. base is, is the long-term home there. Mm -hmm. um, how is he, you know, defensively just as sort of that all-around player? What kind of reviews were you getting there? Uh, still adjusting. I would say the down the road he would be an ordinary, like a 50 type of third baseman. But if you make all the plays you're supposed to and hit like he appears like he can hit, that's mm -hmm. an everyday player in the big leagues. Mm -hmm. And that certainly is upside. Two lefties, co collegiate guys, Anthony Kay, David Peterson. Um, I actually got to go out to Asheville this year and saw Anthony Kay make uh, his second start back. Um, this was someone who, you know, right away you saw the fastball, the curveball changes were coming back, uh, you know, had missed two years after Tommy John surgery, but did what he was supposed to do his first year back, building up, showing you the stuff. Right now, he's the top pitching prospect in the system as you have it ranked. Uh, what did Anthony Kay show you and evaluators this year, and what do they think is still in the tank as he moves into year two away from, uh, away from surgery? Well, spin rate's the big thing with him. His, his curveball, I've been told, is 90th percentile in terms of revolutions per minute in the minor leagues. So it's truly one of the, truly a high spin breaking ball. Doesn't make it a plus pitch right now consistently, but it's in there for him to refine that. Uh, you know, his fastball ticked up to where it was in college. Some, some of the radar readings we were, we were getting at first, you know, that you saw firsthand were somewhat surprising given what we thought we knew about Anthony Kay. So you pair that two potential plus pitches. His changeup was his go-to pitch in college, and being a field pitch, you know, the, there is some optimism that he will recover field for that pitch as he gets healthier. Yeah, first, first year back, uh, got up to high A, struck out, you know, a batter per inning. You know, walks got a little high, but we always know commands sometimes the last thing to come back from surgery. You know, nothing eye-popping, 7-11, 4-2-6 ERA, but held up over 122 innings. You saw the stuff you mentioned, strikeout per inning. Uh, what are the Mets looking for out of him next year once he gets to double A? Uh, just continued durability. You know, I, he's, he's more of this number four type of guy who, you know, there might even be a temptation to make him a multi-inning reliever at some point, given the strength of his two pitches. But, you know, we've seen a lot of teams, you know, <laughs> Endurance isn't necessarily the number one attribute of starting pitchers anymore. So if you could get through five innings, you know, two and a half times through the lineup, often that's enough these days. You know, top out between 150, 180 innings, and you know, we'll worry about the rest. A couple of other arms in the system. We mentioned David Peterson, Simeon Woods Richardson. Was Kay pretty clearly the top pitching prospect no, in the system? No, I think a lot of a lot of people would have um, David Peterson ahead just because he's a higher probability starter. He's, he's more prototype with his, uh, you know, his height. Uh, fastball command is probably a little better at this point. You know, he doesn't, his velocity isn't, isn't, um, isn't great, but he does, his effective velocity plays up because of his, his extension. He has elite extension, you know. He releases the ball closer to the batter than most pitchers. You know, same levels as, as Anthony Kay this year, low A Columbia, high uh, St. Lucie. He did outperform him in terms of ERA. Strikeout rate was a little lower, but so was the walk rate. Mm -hmm. um, I remember making some calls late in the year, and it was like 89 miles an hour. It, mm -hmm. was, it was definitely on the softer side. Um, 
you know, we mentioned, you mentioned the effective velocity. At the big league level, if it's 89 with effective velocity of 92, it's still a little short. What degree of confidence is there that he'll be able to, to you know, be firm enough there that it will survive as that fourth or fifth starter? I think when you factor the, the control, and he, he also, he's also an extreme ground ball pitcher, I think that those work in his favor. But no, he is not prototype in terms of velocity. He, you know, I don't know exactly where to go for a comp, which has been true since his college days. You know, the fastball, slider oriented, starting pitcher. You know, you, you look at him; he's, he's huge. He's six six, two forty. He's you, a big boy. And you expect him to be, you know, overpowering in terms of velocity, but that's not really the case. So you mentioned. There was a case for Peterson above K. Ultimately, what was it that put K above Peterson for you? Just the pitches grayed out better. That's all. Fair enough. Down the list are two interesting guys. You have Shervin Newton and Simeon Woods Richardson, two newcomers uh, to the top ten this year. You know, Woods Richardson was, was a draft pick this year. Uh, Shervin Newton, an international signee who, you know, didn't really have a lot of track record and goes out to the Appy League this year and, and did some impressive things. Uh, what kind of reports were you hearing on these two? And, and obviously they're riskier because they're farther away, but is their upside higher than some of these guys that are ranked ahead of them? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, Newton is interesting. Uh, Shervian Newton from Curacao. He uh, speaks five languages. And, you know, it's common for, I think, a lot of Curacaoans speak a lot of languages. It's just how the life is on the island. Um, education was important to him and his family. You know, he's kind of a translator on his, on his Kingsport team. Just a lot of little interesting attributes that signify strong makeup. And then you have pretty incredible raw power, especially from the left side. He's a switch hitter. Uh, so there is, even if he moves off shortstop, even if he doesn't even stay up the middle, there is some major power potential that he could unlock later on. Of course, he needs to not strike out as often as well, but you know, he's, he's young. His first year in the U.S. after two seasons in the DSL. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the power. Um, you know, you also see the strikeouts, and you also see a lot of walks. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, had a 280 batting average and a 408 on base. Uh, it's not really not quite a three true outcomes guy. There, there's plenty of doubles in there. There's there's a chunk of singles as well. But uh, yeah, a lot of power, a lot of walks, a lot of lot of strikeouts. Does he project to eventually be more of a three true outcomes guy as he advances and faces better pitching, or do you think there's some hitterish development there that could allow him to be more than just that? Yeah, I think it's more than just that. I think this is just, you know, he's, he's just finding a swing, you know, because he didn't hit in his first year in the DSL, but then, then he had a, um, a growth spurt where he be, all of a sudden he became kind of the, the beast that he is now for his age. <laughs> and, and with that came a lot more confidence, and I think that's going to continue to grow. Still going to be 19 on opening day next year when he gets out to Columbia. You know, you look at some, him compared to some of these other infielders we've talked about, you know, Andres Jimenez, Ronnie Mauricio. Newton is, is the lowest ranked of the three, but is the gap that huge? It seems like if everything clicks here, he might be able to be, you know, if not above those guys, at least in the same family. Maybe. and I, I think scouts were more skeptical about his infield future than with the other two. I think there is some corner outfield risk with Newton where he is, you know, a, a corner outfielder with power. That'll work, especially, <laughs> especially as a switch hitter. 
Uh, Simeon Woods Richardson, second rounder. Um, really interesting, you know, one, another big Texas high school arm. Uh, what were the reports on him after after the Mets picked him up this year that you got? Uh, he's he's the pitcher type everybody's after. I mean, every pitcher who's in demand now is has high spin on his fastball, can get it by barrels up in the zone, has good extension, you know. A good breaking ball always helps, and, and that's the case with uh, Woods Richardson. He pretty much has all the all those starter ingredients you'd want to see from a 17-year-old um, pitcher. I think he turned 18 at the end of the year. Also one of the youngest players in his draft class. That's kind of a theme. Mets second-round picks. <laughs> yeah, you know, he didn't pitch a ton after uh, coming out, but the little bit he did was impressive. Uh, 17 to third innings, 26 strikeouts, four walks. Uh, you mentioned he, he didn't turn 18 until after the rookie league season had concluded. Mm -hmm. Again, 17 innings, you don't want to go crazy, but there's a pedigree there, and, and that initial performance, I'm sure, uh, made Mets people very happy. <laughs> yeah, I would expect him to go out to short season next year in you know, Kingsport, maybe Brooklyn, if he looks really advanced. But I wouldn't expect to see him in full season next year. We've gone through, you know, a lot of these Mets guys, uh, you know, at the top of the list. Um, you end up, you know, there at the bottom with some of the trades. You have Franklin Kilame, who was acquired for Azrabel Cabrera, and Thomas Zapucky, <laughs> who is coming off Tommy John surgery. Were these 10 guys the clear-cut top 10, or was there, you know, some debate? And if so, how many guys were really in the mix to be at the back of this list? Uh, this, was pr this was the group, because after this, it's pretty much a free-for-all. Um, I, I think even <laughs> even the Mets would say that the depth beyond this group is is not yet where they want it to be, and you know they'll continue to address that via the amateur acquisition markets. Yeah, so I don't think they're going to be trading off assets anytime soon. <laughs> you know, Jared, Jared Kalanick and Justin Dunn would have been uh, their numbers four and five prospects, I believe. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, they're part of that Robinson uh, Cano Edwin Diaz trade with Seattle. You mentioned not a lot of depth. Uh, they are going to have another high pick uh, mm -hmm. this coming season. Overall, is, it, is this still, because I believe we had it as one of the bottom five systems in baseball at one point last year. Uh, it might be more bottom 10 now than bottom five. But overall, what would you say the overall state of this system is? I think when you consider the high-end value along with the proximity value of Jimenez and Alonso, it's somewhere... I believe we had it between 15 and 20. It's somewhere in that middle to lower middle tier, you know, buoyed by the top two guys and the upside potential of Mauricio. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because you're right. This is not by any means the deepest system, but you look at who this top 10 has, and they are kind of staggered throughout. You have those guys, you know, you mentioned proximity value. You do have the Mauricios and the Newtons and the Woods Richardsons, the world at the lower levels. So it does seem like the Mets are in a position to have guys come up at various points and, and hit and help them. It's not like everyone's five years away or everyone's ready and beyond them. There's nothing. There's a little bit of staggering there. The Mets made the postseason. They obviously reached the World Series in 2015, made it back to the postseason in 2016. The last two years have not gone well. Last year they got to a great start. It fell apart very quickly after that. But they were good in the final three months. And that's one of the things with them and, and partially why you can justify the moves they've made this offseason, taking into account where they are as an organization right now. Where, where do you think they are? Well, ready to contend for a division title. And that's, I, I mean, they have holes to fill. Uh, they're, they're weak 
you know, bullpen is still a major flag, even with Diaz and Familia. will help quite a bit, but yeah, they don't have any ready-made solutions other than those two. They're going to need some people to step up or further acquisitions. We saw them acquire a number of, of hard-throwing relievers during the 2017 trade deadline. Uh, some of them looked better than others upon their major league debuts. Are any of those guys ready to help in your estimation? Or are they... um, if they are, it's going to be Eric Hanhold, Drew Smith. Um, those, those are the leading candidates, unless I'm forgetting somebody. Uh, Daniel Zamora was also you know, pitched in the majors. Uh, through his, his slider 80% of the time in his major league debut. It's a fascinating left-on-left -left type of guy. <laughs> uh, but no, I wouldn't expect any of those guys to be like your, your go-to high leverage options. If anything, you know, it, I guess I neglected. Seth Lugo is, is worth mentioning as a potential high leverage guy. So there are three guys there. And Gaselman had his moments in 2018 as well. Yeah, Gaselman and Lugo, one point to uh, potential starters. They've obviously moved to the bullpen, and, and they all, both had some prospect pedigree of their own at a certain point. Mm -hmm. I, I will say, I think it's going to be very interesting. Um, the Mets obviously have holes to fill, but free agency is still going. Mm -hmm. The Phillies are in a similar boat. The Braves are obviously the defending champions. The Marlins are, you know, pretty at least in theory, going to maybe take another step forward in the rebuild, though we'll see what the theoretical, if that actually matches the reality. And the Nationals will find out whether they bring Bryce Harper back, how that all goes. I do see it being... might not even matter. If you get Robles for a full season with Soto for a full season and you add Corbin to the rotation? I, I would still say you're a better team if you have those guys. If you have Soto in left, Robles in right, in center, and Harper in right, then someone else in right. But yes, the, the Nationals do have a very good pitching staff. They have some potential impact players. The Mets are, you know, it's going to be an interesting year for me just to see how they do. I like the moves they've made, um, whether or not it's enough to vault them to the top of the NL East. Again, seeing there's more moves to be made, it'll be interesting. But there, there's some talent in the system. They're not, you know, completely all in to the point that they've traded it all away. And I have a feeling we'll see a couple of these guys up at the big league level in 2019, even for just a flash. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Alonso will spend a lot of time, barring something unforeseen, he will spend a lot of time in the major leagues. We'll see if he can prove us all wrong and, and uh, go, go play better defense than we expect. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us uh, to discuss the Mets system. Certainly one of the more interesting organizations, both at the major league level and the minor league level. For Matt Eddy, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.